Good morning, everyone. This is Pastor Troy Bond with the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies. Coming to you live from our studios right here in sunny Daytona Beach, Florida. Good to have everyone here with us today for another edition of the Raven Institute of Ministry. This is a ministry of Raven Ministries International. If you want more information on Raven Ministries International, you can actually go to our website, which is located at www.biggrace.com. That's www.biggrace.com. And you'll get more information on Raven Ministries International. One of the things that we're committed to do is to really to work to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We know that he, the, the Word of God tells us in the book of Ephesians that he's given some apostles and some prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Folks, listen, if all you ever do is just come and you hear the Word of God and you don't apply it, uh, you know, the, the Scripture says in James, it says that, that faith without works is dead. And, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so when we come to the table of the Lord and we, we, we receive the Word, what that's designed to do is to build us up in the faith so we can go out and do those things that he has called and equipped us to do. And he goes on to say, he says also in the, the, the letter to Ephesians, he said that we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, and But he adds on to that, created unto good works. And so, folks, the reason we come to Christ... The reason we get the knowledge of the Word is to make us more effective in doing the work of the ministry. We talked about in our study, as we're here in, in, in the book of the Revelation, if you're joining us for the very first time, you know, there's been these periods of time in church history where there's been this Nicolaitan type of mentality or the, the ministry is just strictly laid upon, quote-unquote, the priesthood or those that are in some type of position of authority. Folks, that's not the way that the, the Scripture or the Word of God or Jesus Christ himself ever intended it to be. We are all made ministers of reconciliation. Certainly there are governmental offices within the body of Christ, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, pastor, and teacher. But uh, those are designed to equip people to do the works of those ministries associated with those offices. So if you're here today, our, our goal is to, to invest the Word of God in you. That way you can be more effective in bringing the message of salvation to those that are lost and dying. And if you don't do that, folks, really what the Word will do, uh, if you don't actually go out and apply it, it will stand against you on the Day of Judgment. You know, we're responsible to walk in the amount of light that's been shed into our life. And so if God has shed into my life, uh, my life the, the revelation of forgiveness, I'm going to be judged based upon that. If I'm unforgiving, if he shed in my life the, uh, the, the, the revelation of, of, of going out and witnessing to the lost and dying, and I refuse to do that, folks, that becomes a sin of omission, just like somebody's sin of commission would be. So I really encourage you to take the Word of God, apply it not only to your own life, but take it and apply it to the world that God has strategically placed you in at the end of this age. And so that's what we're here for. And we are, we're studying, we're here Monday through Friday right now from 9 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we're looking and doing a just uh, an expository, you know, verse by verse look at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the, the revelation, you know, a lot of times it's easy to get kind of sidetracked or, 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 or distracted about some of the events that uh, the Apostle John was able to see. But at the end of the day, folks, what it, what we've got to get out of it is how is God revealing Himself to us? Through His Word, especially a word like this revelation, it was a letter that was that was given, written by God, the revelation given by God to His Son Jesus Christ to show us things which must shortly come to pass. And so we're getting to to, to eavesdrop, so to speak, on a conversation that God is having with His Son and seeing the revelation of the ages. And if you've been with us in the previous thirteen classes, already thirteen classes, can you believe it? This is fourteen because we had a day off. Yeah. Monday, because the, the, 
system didn't work. So this is actually the 14th class. If you've been with us in the previous 13 classes, you're finding that, you know, where there's this unveiling of the ages, and you're seeing just how that he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So appreciate you so much being with us and join us again. If you have questions, you can send those questions to raven at biggrace.com, R-A-V-E-N at biggrace.com, and uh, we'll answer those questions. It can be about the study on the Revelation. be another script, uh, study uh, uh, question from scripture we'll get on that just to, as soon as we can and so uh, thank you so much once again for, for joining us if you need prayer you can send a prayer request to pray at biggrace.com we'd love to pray for you as well so let's go to the lord in prayer just ask for his blessing his direction on this time of study in the word of god this morning and for those that have been sick you know we get prayer requests for them to be sick and uh, we, we pray for those on a regular basis. So we're going we're gonna to pray for the needs of those that are physically sick today. If you're sick, just join in with the, the prayer that we're praying today. And we're just going to believe God for your restoration and your healing. Father, we just thank you for this day. Lord God, we thank you that, uh, that, Lord God, this is an opportunity you've given us. Lord God, to come and see, Lord God, your son unveiled to us through the word of God and by the, the, the spirit that's, that's dwelling, Lord God, with us today. And so, Father, as we come to you, Lord God, we just honor your name above every other name. Lord God, we thank you that, that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus, and you've given him a name, Lord God, above every other name, that in his name every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so, Father, today, Lord God, we declare and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he came, Lord God, and he was the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he lived, Lord God, upon this world, and, and he lived a sinless life, and he died a vicarious death upon the cross, Lord God. For us, And if by faith, Lord God, we'll receive him, Lord God. The word says that we'll be forgiven of our sins, Lord God. We'll be changed and transformed, Lord God. And we'll have a promise to spend eternity with him. And so that is the Jesus, Lord God, that we've come preaching today. The one, Lord God, that, that spoke, Lord God, the worlds into existence. The one that holds the universe in the span of his hand. The one, Lord God, that loved us and died for us, Lord God, and seated upon a throne of glory. And so we're here, Lord God, under his name. And Father, we confess, Father, we have no power or ability, Lord God, in and of ourselves. Father, we, we know that the Word tells us that in our flesh dwells no good thing. And Father, we know, Lord God, that if we walk in the flesh, that we'll merely, Lord God, fulfill the lust of the flesh. But Lord God, we don't want to walk in that realm. Lord God, we want to walk in a commitment and a dedication to holiness and righteousness, Lord God, to you. And we know that the only way we can do that is through faith in the finished work of the cross of Calvary. So today, Lord God, we come putting faith, Lord God, where, where faith needs to be put. Not in our, our works, not in our efforts, Lord God, not in our willpower, but we put our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so, Father, we come and we ask, Lord God, for the strength, the, the empowerment, Lord God, the wisdom and the knowledge, Lord God, the ability, Lord God, to, to hear and to understand that which you're speaking to us today. Father, I as a teacher, Lord God, I submit myself unto you, Lord God, and I ask you, Lord God, to, to fill me with wisdom and understanding, Lord God, as I bring this word, Lord God, to your people today. I just ask in the name of Jesus, Lord God, that you cleanse me and forgive me, Lord God, of anything that would impede me, Lord God, of being a vessel of righteousness unto you today. Father, we pray for those that have been sick in their physical bodies, Lord God, we pray for healing. Lord God, many have been suffering, Lord God, colds and flu and allergies, Lord God. And, Father, we're asking, Lord God, by the power of the blood of Jesus, Lord God, that be restored. Father, those that have been suffering, Lord God, from chronic pain, Lord God, or some other type of chronic sickness, we're asking in the name of Jesus, Lord God, that the blood of Jesus, Lord God, would obliterate every symptom, Lord God, every root cause of those sicknesses, Lord God. And, Father, you would raise them up, Lord God, through the power of your name, in the name of Jesus. Lord God, now be with us today. Father, be with us, Lord God, as we're heading into a weekend, Lord God, that, that uh, we might be, be filled with your power and presence to give us 
opportunity, Lord God, to take this word and share it, Lord God, with the lost and dying world. And everyone said amen, 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 and amen. If you are listening to us live today, what is today, the 21st? The 21st of November 2008, if you're listening to us live, we're actually going to be uh, heading out to uh, the South Florida area this late this afternoon. We're going to be doing a big outreach uh, with uh, Brother Ivan Itzkowitz with Walk for Christ. And uh, we're going to go out there and just preach the gospel and witness to people and feed hundreds upon hundreds of, of people. And so be praying for us as we make that, that road to, to tonight. And uh, from I believe from 8 a.m. until 4 o'clock p.m. tomorrow, we'll be doing this outreach right there in, in what's called Hollywood, Florida. Hollywood, Florida is a is a kind of a uh, uh, area right there near Miami and really kind of a repressed area, a lot of poverty and whatnot in the area, but really a lot of tremendous opportunity for that. So we sure appreciate your, your prayers. We'll be praying for you as some of you are out in your cities and neighborhoods, workplaces, whatever it is, uh, doing the work of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 2, and we're, we're actually going to be uh, starting chapter 3 of Revelation, uh, the book of the Revelation. And so, but I want to, I want to read something to you from Second Peter chapter 2, 20 and 22 to kind of lay the, the kind of the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about with the, the church age that we're speaking of today. And it says, For if after you have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, it says the, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it to turn away from the holy commandments delivered unto them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, that a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to the wallowing back into the mire. Folks, what do you ask you? What do you think of somebody who, uh, who maybe God has supernaturally delivered them from a, uh, a life of, of some type of bondage? Maybe they were in drugs or prostitution or, or, or alcoholism or whatever it may have been. But you, you saw God that, that delivered them just mercifully and powerfully from it. You know, and they'd previously been on this, this path of destruction, and they were nearly total annihilation. I mean, you could just see their life hanging by a thread. And suddenly, you know, there came an opportunity for change. And God just stepped in and did a miraculous work, and they were made free by the, by the redemptive work of the cross of Calvary. You know, you know, folks, we've been making our way kind of through through history, and we we've been been seeing the history of the church and these events unfold over over a course of hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and you see Jesus Christ dealing with His church as revealed by the Apostle John here in this this revelatory letter. You know, we talked about that that the church at Ephesus, the uh, the of apostolic church, the people that He was in the midst of, and it was the permitted. It was the church that got that type of freedom. And, and so when we think about that, that freedom from that deliverance from destruction, you know, within the confines of that, that Ephesus culture, I'm sure there were people that had been involved in all types of idolatry and immorality or whatever it may have been, that the, the, that permitted word came, that word that sets men free came to them. Then you begin to see things happen. You begin to see the, the church at Smyrna, that persecuted church, uh, represented by what the name means, the myrrh, or that, that sweet-smelling aroma. And you saw that during times of great persecution, that people drew near to him uh, uh, in, in holiness and in righteousness. And, and really, probably one of the greatest times in church history of church growth, people coming uh, to the kingdom, to come into to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it was going to cost them their lives. Folks, that's still the message. The message is, uh, whoever desires to be his disciple, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and 
follow him. We know that whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. And so that was the, the mentality of the Smyrna church. Then, then we, we talked about the church at Pergamos, or that politically seduced church, that the name uh, Pergamos literally meant elevated or married much. We get our word polygamy from that. And this was a church that, was, uh, that, that came about once Constantine signed the Edict of Milan and, and, and uh, eventually made... Uh, Christianity, the state-sponsored religion of the Roman Empire, and it became seduced by that power and, and, and that involvement within the world system. But then we talked about, for over two days, we talked about the Church of Thyatira, the pagan church, that literally meant the stench of death or female domination. And, and you know, folks, while the Church at Thyatira, the age or what we call it, the rise of, of, of what you know, came known as Catholicism, we saw that from the period of 605 until 1517 A.D., and it really kind of served, those served kind of as the formative years, but its effects that we've talked about are still really in the world, and they're reaping that exact same destruction on a new generation of, of people that are adherents to that cultic teaching. And so what, what brought about this end to really an unopposed influence of that period of that Thyatira was the rise of what we're going to be talking about today, the rise of the Church of Sardis. In which really begin is what is referred to as the the Reformation, and I and I kind of alluded to it in our in our discussion on the Church at Thyatira that uh, in 1517 a man by the name of Martin Luther, who was a, a Catholic monk, that he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. At the time, it wasn't Germany; it was Saxony. But he took these these things that God had showed him in prayer. Uh, and, and, and wrote them down in, in categorically in 95, dealing with the indulgences, uh, which indulgences, what it was, is if somebody had a sin, that they would go and they would, they would pay the, the priest certain things, or they would have to walk on their knees upstairs. I mean, just crazy things like that that they would have to do that were just not biblical. So Luther began to address these things, and basically he, he took them to the, 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 the sixth, seventh, and eighth chapters of the book of Romans and began to show them there was justification by by faith through the grace of God. And so he nailed these things to it, and it really served as kind of a rebuke for, for the false teachings, the indulgences, all those things that had been propagated uh, through the Catholic Church that, that Luther just could not reconcile either spiritually or scripturally in his life. And what that did is that led to his break, or really his, his excommunication uh, from the, the Catholic Church, and uh, he lived his life, the, rest of the remainder of his life, really with death threats and everything else. People wanted to assassinate him for his stand for against the, the teachings of that church at Thyatira, that Catholic, uh, that Catholic age. And, you know, there's some things, though, that are really kind of interesting, both historically and spiritually, concerning this, this church of Sardis that I want us to kind of look at. And, and, and number one, the city came from a, a part of the Roman Empire, became, excuse me, became a part of the Roman Empire in 189 B.C., 189 B.C. Now, I want to give you something that you're going to see how important this is. Even though it became a part of the Roman Empire in 189 B.C., it was considered a dependent city of Pergamos until 133 A.D. It was a dependent city of Pergamos until 133 A.D. Now, what I mean by that, you take, for instance, you know, uh, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, until just a few years ago, was uh, a part of the great British colony. Now, in just a few years ago, they, they released Hong Kong back, even though it's set right in the middle of, of mainland China. It was a, it was a, a colony of, of Great Britain, and they had control over it for, governmentally for a long time. They didn't after a while. 
because it was what? It was dependent upon Great Britain. And you see other things like that as well. You take, you take Guam. You know, Guam is part of a, it's a U.S. territory. Puerto Rico, it's a United States territory. Different nations have things that are dependent upon them. Then sometimes what happens is though they strike out in independence. But the thing about uh, uh, Sardis was that it had become, it was a dependent city upon Pergamus until 133 A.D. And so I want to ask you a question. Why is that important or why is that so interesting to me? Now, folks, remember what Pergamus mean? Pergamus meant elevate or married much. In other words, they had become prideful. They had become elevated. They had a name because they had been involved in this state-sponsored church. They, they sought position. They sought these things. But in doing so, what they did is they married themselves or they began to commit spiritual adultery with the things of that system, the things of that, the world, and the things of the natural. And so it was a product of Constantine, like I said, making it the state-sponsored religion. Now think about what Numbers chapter 14, verse 18 says. It says, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means, though, clearing the guilty. Now listen to this next part. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children even to the third and fourth generations. Folks, you ever go to the doctor and the doctor begins to take a, a, a write-up? Maybe you're a new patient and he begins to give you a checklist. Uh, is there any uh, history of diabetes in your family? History of kidney disease? History of cancer? Any of these things? What are they asking you for? They're asking you for the iniquities that have been in your family, the paths of least resistance. Why? Because all of those things are tied to something genetic. There's something, part of your DNA, that has the ability to hold on to these things. You know, there's the reason that you look like your mother and father and not the guy down the street. It's because genetically you're a part of them. It's the same thing, a spiritual genetic or spiritual DNA, which started in the church at Pergamos, that you're going to see resurface in the church at Sardis. So I want you to really pay attention to these things. And so, and that's an iniquity. It's going to be visited on the children to even the third or the fourth generations. And so, what you're going to see is how that iniquity is going to, going to that had been upon that formerly dependent church it's that, that fell in that previous time period of, 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 of Pergamos is now going to find itself, revealing itself between 1517 and 1730 in the church of Sardis. And you're, going to, you're going to see just how that same mentality popped up. And here's what it says. We're going to read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it says, Under the angel of the church in Sardis, and we talked about what that angel was. That's the messenger uh, who's the pastoral leader of that church in Sardis, right? These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, and that you have a name that lives and are dead. Be watchful, though, and strengthen the things which remain that are, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on you as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. Thou hast a few names, even as Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Back to that first verse, and to the angel of the church at Sardis, write, These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name that lives and are dead. You know, you know we remember from our, our previous study on these churches and church periods that within the, the, the age of these names, 
that really, and, and really the introductions, they kind of provided a look, it really into the nature of the church and, and how that, uh, that Jesus would begin to address these in each letter. And so I want us to look and see if that, that pattern that we saw, you know, kind of holds true as we're looking at this. And so, uh, Sardis, literally by name, it means remnant or few escaped. A remnant or few have escaped. And I'll get back to that part of it in just a minute. Then it gives you this address that he gives. You remember we talked about the different addresses that he, he gave. He, he talked about, you know, the church at Ephesus that I walked in the midst of you and because it was the apostolic age. We talked about, you know, the church at, uh, at Smyrna that uh, it was the, the, the persecuted church. It was myrrh and that uh, he, he told them that, you know, I'm the resurrection life. And so we saw that pattern. He always told them of the things that they needed to hear. And so let's look and see why it's so important that he addresses them by saying, you know what, uh, that saith the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, and I know your works and you have a name and you are dead. Remember, seven spirits, we were introduced to that terminology in chapter 1, verse 4. Seven stars. We were addressed to that in chapter 1, verse 16. And we saw it defined in, in, in chapter 1, verse 20, what the seven stars were. So I want to look back at, at some teaching that we did in, in class number 3, ten, 10 classes ago. In talking about this seven spirits, 1, 4, how he's addressing the church at Sardis. Now, once again, he's speaking, when he's talking about seven spirits, he's not speaking of seven-headed spirit or seven different spirits. He's talking about the totality or perfection of the Spirit of God that defines the attributes of the Spirit. And so when he says, listen, who has the seven spirits of God? He's talking about, listen, the one that's speaking to you is the one that holds all of those attributes. Now remember, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And remember, I gave you those, those seven spirits. Spirit of the Lord being authority. Spirit of wisdom being skill. Spirit of understanding being discernment. Spirit of counsel being purpose. Spirit of might being power. Spirit of uh, knowledge being obviously knowledge. Spirit of the fear of the Lord being the moral dread of being displeasing unto God or the aspect of holiness. And she's not going to put them on the screen again today because you have those in your notes. And so, folks, here's what happened at Thyatira. What had happened to them was that there had been a total departure really from the Spirit of God. And so he's having to remind them, listen, the one that's speaking to you is the one that encompasses the totality of perfection. What they had done is they had departed from a dependence upon the Spirit of God and they'd fallen under the spirit of religion or under this whole Catholic type of hierarchical system. What they'd done is they had they'd fallen victim to the wisdom of man and had abandoned really any true and legitimate reliance upon the Spirit of God to lead and to direct them. Why did that happen? Or a better question would be is, how did that happen to them? Folks, listen, they were a period, that, that, that previous regime that this church came out of, Sardis uh, 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 moved forward from, what it was, it was, a, it was a church that had been built upon error, that had been built upon false doctrine. Really what they had done is they had departed from the faith and they had given heed to seducing spirits and, and doctrines of devils, as we talked about uh, in, in addressing that. But I want you to look at a couple of verses of Scripture from the Gospel of John. The first one is John chapter 16, verse 13. John 16, 13. I'm going to show you why he had to address them, speaking once again from that verse in, in verse 4 of chapter 1 about the seven spirits of God. Chapter uh, 16, verse 13 of the Gospel of John says, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, Spirit of who? Spirit of truth is come, 
He will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, how did we get into this, this book? He said, I'm going to show you things which must shortly come to pass. Where's that derived out of here in the Gospel of John chapter 13? Through a knowledge of the truth. What had happened with the, the, the church that, that Sardis followed was they had, they had departed from the truth. Why? Because under that, that Catholic uh, system, they, they, they weren't allowed to even have a Bible of their own. They were told they couldn't understand it anyway, and it was left up to the, to the hands of the priests. And so he's bringing them back to the spirit of truth in John 8.32. You know this one. And it says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And so there's a freedom in knowing the truth. What kept the, the, the previous church, that church at Thyatira, under bondage was they didn't know the truth. And when you get the truth, and you'll see people even that come out of that age, come out of that mentality, come out of the Catholic Church, once their eyes are open to the truth, they're thinking, how on earth did I ever believe that? Why? Now they're, they're led and they're guided into all truth, and the truth makes them free from those things. And so what had happened, Thyatira was when it had taken the word of God out of the hands of the common people, because in doing so, it kept them from the truth and it kept them in the bondage to that, what do we talk about, female domination, that, that Mary, Mary worship. It, it kept them in the, the stench of death that accompanies discultic practices, all those things. So they had to be kept from the truth. Now, we're about to see the Spirit of God move upon His people again to cause them first to return to the Word. And so when the Spirit of God comes, it's going to immediately take you back to the Word. Why do I say that? Because he will not speak of himself, but what shall ever he hears, that is what he will speak. And we as believers, what? We, we've received that word. All scripture is good and profitable for doctrine. We know that it is the theonoustos. It's God-breathed word. And so what's the Spirit speaks? It speaks of what God said. It speaks of the truth. And so the Spirit of God is going to come and it's going to speak through that word. And we saw, we talked about this too, when, when William Tyndale uh, ended up translating the, the, the Bible into the, the hands of the common man and put it in people's hands, he ended up being killed as a result of, of just his, his work in this Reformation time to lay the groundwork for it. And so that secondly, the first thing was that it returned to the word. Secondly, it, the Spirit of God would once again begin to move and operate in people's lives. Because what you saw previous to that was these dark ages. You saw this period of time where uh, they, they had the vain teachings and rudimentary teachings of men, vain philosophies, all these things, but you didn't see the Spirit of God. You saw the age of the Crusades. You saw the age of persecution in the name of Christ. All these things that had nothing to do with the Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 uh, understanding of who He is. And so what we're seeing is the return to the Word, which is going to open up the door for the return to the Spirit of God. Folks, listen. If you look at this church history, if you look from the time that we started in Ephesus, now that we've made our way into the third chapter talking about the church at Sardis, the only true revival that had been experienced there had, hadn't been experienced since that persecuted church of the Smyrna age. And, and that was it. I mean, you didn't see it for literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Any type of, uh, of, 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 of revival happened. You didn't see it at Pergamos. You didn't see it at Thyatira. But what you're about to see is something is going to change. And what is the key to bringing about revival? The king about, thing about revival is getting into the Word and allowing the Spirit of God to move. And so that's what he's telling this church. He says, listen... These things saith the one that has the Spirit of God. You've been dead. You've been dry. You've been dark. But I'm telling you, I'm the one. I'm the one that, that, that is the Spirit of God. I am the third member of the Godhead. I am the, the Holy Spirit. And I'm about to move in your midst. Then 
he addresses them by using the terminology once again from one six. And he says, and the seven, excuse me, one sixteen. And he says, and the seven stars. Folks, again, this is a period that endured about a thousand years prior to that of infiltration of these cultic pagan practices. You know, they had been largely robbed of the word of God. They had suffered under that Nicolaitan type of, of hierarchy. In other words, that all this priesthood, the bishops, all these people had domination over the lay people. And they just said, you know, you're, you're basically ignorant. You have no ability to learn. We're just going to tell you what you need to know. And they'd been really plundered by these indulgences and all these things that they'd been taken advantage of. And, and it could have seemed to those people that, that and, or if somebody was just a bystander on the outside looking in, it could have seemed like God had forgotten them. It could have looked like, you know what, he, 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 God just somehow lost control of things. That for a thousand years, where, where's God at? Now, now, folks, some of you, if things fall apart for a week, you wonder where God went. You know, if, 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 your, if your electricity gets turned off, you wonder where God went. If you have a cold or something you can't share, you wonder where God went. And so can you imagine the mentality of a people that have been brought up in these traditions of men? They, they're not seeing the Spirit of God move. They're not even knowing the Word of God. They don't know that the Spirit of God can move because they've been blinded by the darkness of that age. And, and, and they, they've just been enveloped literally by the stench of the death of, of dead, dry uh, uh, religion. And so they could have thought to themselves, you know what? God is out of control. God has no key to me. But what did he say? He said, listen, i got news for you. I'm the one who has the seven stars. We know what the interpretation of that. He's saying, listen, all along, folks, I've, I've had the church in my hands. So even if you're here and you're kind of having, uh, battling maybe a, a Sardis type of mentality, where's God? Listen, the one, amen, who holds the, the seven stars in his hand is the one that's speaking into your life right now. And that's what he wanted to tell this church. Listen, I'm here. I'm, I'm the one who, who, who moved by the Spirit. I'm moving in your midst. And I'm the one that's been controlled the whole time. Now, once again, let's see if we're, we're holding true. The word Sardis, remember, meant remnant or a few had escaped. What you're going to see here, though, is that because of the tyranny and really the oppression of that Thyatiran period or that rise of Catholicism, you know, many people, because of the deadness of it, were ready to revolt, to just revolt or just bolt, literally, from that type of teaching and to be liberated from the weight of this dead religion. So they were ready. And so anything that came down the pike that, that kind of had a semblance of what their traditions were, but freedom from the bondage, boy, they were ready to jump on it. And so they didn't want to leave religion altogether. And so what they were looking for is just a, really a suitable replacement. And what Sardis did, the Sardis age, it provided a suitable replacement for what they had. And so what you're going to see, historically, what you'll find through Sardis is that there is a large defection from Catholicism to Protestantism. And at the, the Reformation, you had even whole nations. I mentioned Martin Luther in Germany. The, the German nation turned to, uh, 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 to Lutherism, basically, and they became the, the Lutheran church became the official church of, 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 of Germany. Uh, Great Britain or England, they started the church in England. Norway is another one that fell. That's just a few of the whole nations that wanted to part from really the heavy hand of, of the, the Roman Catholic Church. And they wanted really what they wanted to do was just set up their own system to kind of accommodate their own personal excesses. And so they wanted their own system devoid of the control, but they still enveloped a lot of the religious things. So it was really only a fewer remnant that genuinely escaped. The rest of them just changed the name of the religion and they changed just some of the, the philosophies. The others just basically moved from one 
prison house of, of religion to another prison house of religion. They weren't really free. They never. They weren't really the remnant that escaped from that from that bondage. And then he goes on to say, he said, "I know your works, that you have a name, that you live, and you are dead." And so, folks, think about that just for a second. You have a name that you live, and the name is that you're alive. The name is that you're on fire. The name is that that you're on the cutting edge. The name is that you have a, a reputation. That you're this and that. And he said, but you are dead. Folks, what happened with, with Sardis and really by extension, what we're going to call this the, the, the Reformation period, is that it started out really as remnant of genuine revival. And they, they, but they, 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 they started out really wanting to break from those traditions, break from that, that bondage of that, that Thyatiran age. But what ended up happening is they ended up digressing right back into a period of dry, dead, Formalism. It became very formal. It became very stodgy. It became something that, that boasted of being alive, but it was dead. You know, the, the Martin Luthers, the Ulrich Zwingli's, the John Calvins, and, and many others, what they did is they opened up the door for people to really kind of flee from a spiritual sarcophagus, if I can use that, that word, of, of Catholicism. And, but they themselves found, found a way to slipped back into the same snare of traditions of men and really a resistance to the Spirit of God. Why? Because man always wants to be in control. And so rather than just preaching the freedom of being saved by grace, preaching the message of the cross, what happened is the Luthers and the Zwinglies and the, the Calvins and, and others that were involved in, 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 in coming out and in birthing that Reformation movement around from the Catholic Church, what they did is they began to pickpocket that church at Thyatira and adopt some of those things that they found useful. And so they had a name, or in other words, they had gained a reputation or a following that thought they were alive, but in reality they were dead. Now, I've been to places, I've talked to people and said, man, you need to come to our church. It's Man, it is alive. It is on fire. And, and I've visited, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you have got to be kidding me. You call this on fire? This is, this is as dead as it gets. But folks, you know what it's from? It's from perspective. Because that person talking to me, maybe they'd come from a dead, dry, totally uh, traditional, and now they're in something else that may provide a little bit of freedom. Maybe they, they, they come to a place that, that didn't allow a, a piano in the church, and now they got a, a guitar and a drum too. And so they're thinking, but in reality, spiritually, it's still dead. But what it does, it just meets something that breaks them from the formalism of something. But in reality, you say to yourself, what, what's, what are you doing? Are you learning the truth? Are you, are you praying more? Are you winning people? Gee, well, well, no, I just, I just feel a little bit freer. And so it's, it's based upon reputation. And so that, that's exactly what happened. And we're going to see how those churches that were birthed out of the Reformation as we move forward in the church at Sardis, you're going to see it even to this day. And so you can see how they thought they were dead. And you can sit through one reformer, and I'm going to talk about one guy in particular, and that is John Calvin. And so, you know, many of you have heard of, of John Calvin. To this day, you're going to have people that call themselves Calvinists, you know, and, 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 and they'll adhere to his teachings. And some of them are more loyal to the teachings of John Calvin than they are uh, loyal to the teachings of, of the Word of God. Yet they claim to be alive, but they're dead. You know, like I said, many of you have heard of John Calvin, and it probably heard of the five points of Calvinism. I'm, I'm going to give you what those are today. And, you know, some people call it TULIP, because that's the initials for his teaching. 
And I'm going to give you these things, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of just give you a brief description of what they are. And, and, and look at that, I thought I was alive, but I was dead type of mentality, because really this is a summation, what I'm about to give you is a summation of that, that, that age of, of, of Sardis or this, uh, this Reformation age. He taught this, he taught TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, T being total depravity. In other words, what he taught is that people are unable to choose God. People in and of themselves are totally unable to choose God. And so he, he had a conflict with a man by the name of Joseph Arminius. And people, some people call themselves Arminian. Joseph Arminian believed that people had a free will. I'm not going to get into their debate or what happened in that. But I'm going to show you where the problem is with his teaching on total depravity, unable to choose God. Because they had fallen into, uh, fallen really away from the grace teaching that birthed the Reformation, what they fell into was a mentality that they ceased to understand grace. It almost adopted, like many in the church today, many that are still quote-unquote Calvinists have adopted. They, they think that grace is, is just a, the unmerited favor of God. That you didn't do anything, there was no component whatsoever. God just said, okay, I'm having grace upon you. And folks, while that was true, when God called the, the, the Jews, when he called Abram out of uh, the year of the Chaldees and established them, there, there was nothing. He just called somebody out and said, I'm going to make a people out of you. Folks, there, there's something within the realm of Christianity that changes the complexion of that. Yes, I believe that, that, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I believe that there's none good whatsoever. I, I believe that our flesh dwells no good thing. But there's something that God brought upon the scene called grace, called the divine influence of God by definition upon our hearts that's going to bring a reflection. And so what grace does is grace basically returns us to a place momentarily that was represented before the fall of Adam. Adam had free will. He had a choice. Once man fell, he didn't really have a choice. All he could choose was wickedness. But the thing about God, he sent grace in to influence and basically to open our eyes for a minute. Light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil brings condemnation. But if I choose light and I choose life, what do I have? I have the ability to choose. So he momentarily, through grace, through that influence, takes us out of a depraved state. Now what can we do? We can choose to stay out of it through repenting and believing the gospel, or we can digress and we can resist grace and walk right back into that same deprivation. And so that's where I would differ, and I believe the Scripture differs biblically on the teaching of, of, of this Reformation, the deadness of it, this tulip teaching, this total depravity, the T, is that men can't, so God just randomly or arbitrarily or however God selects it sovereignly, they'll use the term, chooses man because his grace is not sufficient. Folks, there's the sufficiency of grace. The sufficiency of grace comes and gives us the ability to choose righteousness. So that was T. The U is unconditional election, which walks hand in hand with that. Another term for that is, is this teaching on predestination. Some are, are predestined to go to heaven, and some are predestined to go to hell. And there's nothing that you can do about it. It's an unconditional election. In other words, it wasn't because God began to deal with you, and, and you went forward, and you had a choice to make, and, and you chose to repent. It has nothing to do with that. It's a predestination. God had already said you're going to walk that aisle, or you're going to fall on your knees, or you're going to get by your bed, or you're going to cry out to Jesus. He had already decided that. There, there, was, there was no conditional election based upon any decision, any choice that we made. That's the you. Then L is limited atonement. Limited atonement. And, and this, folks, this is scary to believe so many people believe this. 
is basically it believes that Jesus only died for those who would be saved, that his blood only atoned for those who would eventually be saved. And that hence limited atonement. The, 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 the thinking or the reasoning behind Calvinism in regards to limited atonement is that if Jesus paid the price for every sin, how could he end up casting people into hell whose sins have been paid for? But it's a total lack of understanding in regards to, to what atonement was. Atonement provided the provision, and we are partakers of that provision through faith. And I, and I think about guys like this. who John Calvin was a very intelligent, a genius. But you see how their, their eyes are blinded by the things of this world. By the, the darkness of that age has blinded them, and they could not even see the clarity of, of the Scripture, the Word of God. So he taught a limited atonement that only the people that would eventually, through total uh, unable to choose God through predestination would come. That was the only ones that the blood actually atoned for. The, the, the fourth thing is the I, irresistible grace, which basically says that those who are chosen will succumb to grace. It has nothing to do with grace influencing them and re- basing the reflection on what we choose. And so it's irresistible. You know, His grace, it's going to come and you can't make a choice. So it's not just an influence. Basically, it overwhelms you and it makes the choice for you. That's irresistible. Pardon? Then what? Then what? Yeah, then, then what? <laughs> then you're just already saved because you were. So if it, was, if it had come to the, the unconditional eternal election, why would you even need grace to be involved? It's going to happen anyway. Then finally, the P of Tulip, which was the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. Another way of putting that is unconditional eternal security. Or you've heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. That comes out of Calvinism. And so I'm not going to look at all these, the deadness of all these things. I kind of touched on a little bit. But I want to look at really the point that I see is the most dangerous point within these, these five things that, that came out of the deadness of this Reformation. And that's the P, or the preservation of the saints, or that whole once saved, always saved. The reason I want to look at it, because this is the one issue that Jesus addresses specifically in his letter at the church at Sardis. Did you see it when I read those verses? He addresses specifically this doctrine of once saved, always saved, or Calvin's tulip message. Why? Because he had already saw where this was coming in. So he addressed it when he was addressing these. You know, folks, some of you may have grown up believing, like I did. I believed in that false teaching of of once saved, always saved. That's what I was taught. That's what I was told. Uh, That's what I, I adhere to. And the reason that I adhered to it until I genuinely got born again in my late teens was because my lifestyle demanded it. Because my lifestyle was one of carnality. My lifestyle was one of, of walking in continual uh, uh, sin and, and besetting sin. I needed the doctrine of unconditional eternal security or once saved, always saved to give myself a little bit of assurance that I was going to get to go to heaven. That I couldn't digress or I couldn't walk away or I couldn't uh, uh, fall away from the truth. And that I was saved because, you know what, I prayed a prayer and, you know, when I was at youth camp or I was in a Sunday school class, I prayed that prayer and so, you know what, one day God's going to bring me back. That's the gist of what is taught. I have family members that still adhere to that same type of philosophy. They have husbands that are complete alcoholics or, or using drugs, but because they cried out one day, you know, 25 years ago, and, and, and said a little prayer that they're going to heaven. Folks, that is a lie straight from the pits of hell, and Jesus addressed it here. Now, I want you to remember something. You know, you grew up, maybe some of you, and, and, and you had those roots of that false teaching. You know, but really with the church at Sardis, and I told you this earlier, it had its roots in its dependence upon Pergamos. 
in its roots upon the dependence on Pergamos. And I said to you that the sins of the fathers are visited on their children in the third or fourth generation. You may be asking yourself, so how does Pergamos tie into this preservation of the saints or this error of unconditional eternal security? Well, I'm glad you asked. Now remember this. That was the age of state-sponsored religion. Okay, Pergamos was. And anyone who signed up was considered Christian. You were. I mean, you just if you were a part of the Roman state, the only religion that was recognized was that. And so it really didn't matter what you really believed. Yeah, it really didn't matter what you really believed. As long as you were part of the state-sponsored religion, you called yourself Christian. Now, you could call yourself that, and you could practice paganism. Big deal. You're still a Christian. You could do that. You could practice humanism. You could practice whatever ism that you, you wanted to. But as long as you called yourself a Christian, it really didn't matter what you did because you were part of the Pergamus Church. You were part of the state-sponsored church made uh, available through the Edict of Milan through Emperor Constantine. And so you were saved. And so, folks, what's happened here is the roots showed up again by reproducing this fruit in the church at Sardis. And so... Calvin himself, and you, you see the wickedness of that. Calvin himself, history shows, that he, he commissioned the murder of one of his staunchest adversaries because the guy stood against this erroneous teaching. And so, under the state-sponsored religion of, 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 of Constantine in Christianity in Rome, you know what, if you opposed it, they just killed you. Calvin did the exact same thing. He had a critic that was, that was challenging him on these points, and so what did he do? He just had him killed. Why? Because his roots were in that same mentality that had happened 1,500 years prior to that time. But it had been visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Why? Because they thought they were alive. And you know what? They were. A remnant came out that was legitimate. But they began to digress back into the vain teachings and the rudimentary teachings and the vain philosophies of men, and they allowed those things to be embedded back into them again. I'm not going to go real deep into this whole theology of uh, the, the free will or unconditional eternal security, but I'm, I'm going to say if there was ever a teaching that described Matthew 7, 7 chapter 13 through 23, it's that teaching right there that came out of this, this, this church of Sardis who thought they were alive but were dead. I'm going to read Matthew 7, 13 through 21, 23 to you real quick. It says, Enter in the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Few there be that sardis. Sardis there be, a remnant. Few there be that escape. You see how that's tying in? Verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. In other words, they live and they're really dead. you see it? You will know them by their fruits. The fruit of what? The fruit of the Spirit. That he's saying, I'm speaking, telling you about the Spirit, the seven spirits. He said, you know it by the fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. That's that reproductive fruit. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you will know them. 
Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone that, that enters the state-sponsored church. Not everyone that says, I just want to get out from under the bondage of, uh, of Catholicism and go into Protestantism. Not everyone that just lays claim to something that says they're alive but they're dead are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many are going to say to me in that day, I'm a tulip. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a whatever. They're going to say to me, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied your name? Could you not look into history and see the many volumes of, of works that we've done? Have we not cast out devils? Have we not destroyed our adversaries like the ones that oppose our teaching? And your name did many wonderful works. Have we been greatly benevolent and, and had a mark and, and, and gained this great uh, reputation? But he will profess unto them, I will profess unto them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity or lawlessness. Now you see it, folks? That's the mentality of the church at Sardis. They created, by opening the door through the Reformation, this wide gate. But there's only few that found the narrow way out of that bondage and the rest digressed back to the roots of, of, of the Pergamus type of mentality. We'll see how this issue is really kind of specifically addressed in just a second. Then he says in verse 2, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works to be perfect before God. So what did he tell them to do? He told them to be watchful. Now, when the Scripture speaks of being watchful, he tells us to watch as well as pray. Watchfulness isn't something that you just sit back and you're just looking. Watchfulness has something to do with the commission that we're called to. You see that in Ezekiel 3. You see it in Ezekiel 33. He said, I've made you a watchman. A watchman doesn't sit somewhere with his hands clasped, studying theology or praying silently or, or flogging himself over the head with something every once in a while and think he's doing something spiritual. A watchman is someone that gives warning. And so he's saying the way that you stay out of that deadness is that you're watchful. He said, in other words, you go do those things that I've called you to do. You be like a watchman. If you warn the wicked from the wickedness of their ways and they die in their wickedness, he said, I'm not going to count their blood on your hands. But if you're not a watchman, if you're not watchful and you don't warn people, I'm, not, I'm going to hold you accountable for their blood. And so what he's saying is the exact same thing that Paul's telling uh, uh, young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. When he tells them the time is going to come when men are going to not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, they're going to heap to themselves. Teachers, because they have itching ears. He tells us to endure afflictions, to do the work of an evangelist. In other words, be watchful. Be like a watchman. Be the one that takes the word that's been given to you and takes it out to see people get saved. The, the reason that they weren't watchful within the, the confines of Calvinism is what's the need for it? If, if the people are going to get saved, they're going to get saved. Where's my urgency? If, if, if it's irresistible grace, it's going to happen. If I don't do it, God knew that I wasn't going to do it. And so someone else is going to do it. And so they lost their watchfulness. They lost their urgency. They lost their, 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 their desperation to go and do the things that he's called them to do. To bear forth the fruit. That fruit right there in Matthew 7 is the Greek karpos. It means reproductive fruit from sharing the seed of God's word into someone's life. And so he's telling them, listen, you've got to go back to a place of watchfulness. You've got to go back to the, to the Mark 16, 15 Great Commission. You've got to go back to the ministry of reconciliation. You've got to go back to becoming an ambassador for Christ Jesus and strengthen those few things, that remnant that remains. Paul the Apostle said, listen, I'm determined not to know anything among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. 
I'm going to go back to that one thing that remained. The one thing that caused me to exit from the dark ages. The thing that justification by faith. The urgency to go preach the gospel that's going to set captives free. I'm telling you, go back and strengthen that which, is, uh, which remains that is ready to die. And he said, if you don't do it, what's going to happen is it's going to be obliterated. You're going to lose your urgency. You're going to lose your focus. And what's going to happen is you're going to re-sow the seeds of iniquity from your fathers into another generation. He said, I've, found, I've not found your works to be perfect before God. Look, that speaking of, that's the roots. He's saying, I've not found your works. I've not found the things that are coming out of your life to be perfect unto God. In other words... Those things that, that came out that you allowed, you allowed your reputation, you, you allowed all these other theologies and ideologies that departed from the gospel of grace to come in. He said, I've not found them things perfect before God. Remember, he says in verse 3, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore you, are, you shall not watch, I will come on you as a thief and you shall not know what hour I come upon you. Therefore, remember the things that you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Folks, we're studying the book of 1 John as well on Sundays. And, you know, he's talking about in the 1 John, the, the disciples, they said, we testify of the things we've both seen and heard. He's saying to go back. But he says in, in 1 John 1 and 6, he said, if I say that I have fellowship with him, but I walk in darkness, I lie. Isn't that the exact same thing he said here? He said, you say that you're alive, but you're dead. Folks, that's what First John was addressing. He was addressing this, this whole Gnostic system that had tried to come into the church. It basically said, listen, things you do in the flesh, you do in the flesh. Basically, you know, you're okay. And the same thing that would uh, rear its head here with the Reformation uh, beginning in, the, in the, 15, uh, the 1500s. And so you see all the, the basis for those things that are, that are blowing up. Now, now, think about this as well in verse 3. He said, well, I will come on you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I come upon him. Now remember, we talked about this when we opened up our class in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 9. Who's he talking to? He's quote unquote talking to the church at Sardis. What was their problem? They had become, they said they were alive, but they were really dead. But listen to what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 9. But at the times of season, brethren, you have no need that I should write those to you. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them, which prevail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night or darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch. Be watchful. Verse 2, Revelation chapter 3. But watch and be sober, for the, they that sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet and the hope of salvation. Why do you need a hope of salvation if it's already been a predetermination? You don't. For God has not appointed us unto wrath, but unto obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see that whole uh, doctrinal error being being revealed right here in these in these verses of, in, in 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 the third chapter of the book of uh, Revelation concerning the church at, at Sardis. This says in verse four. It says, "But you have a few names. What does Sardis mean? It means a few, a remnant." Few that escape, he said, you have a few names, even the Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Folks, what, what you're going to see as we get into the, the Reformation, uh, excuse me, get, move out of the Reformation into this, this next church age, which really starts with the first great awakening, is there's people that were on the tail end of the church at Sarda age. 
that remained, that they were the few that did not defile their garments. They went forth and they preached the message of holiness. They preached the message of, of, of faith towards God. They preached a message of repentance, turning those things. And you're going to see how it, it blew up and it really brought forth the church at Philadelphia, which is only the second church that did not have anything negative said. The first one was obviously the persecuted church at Pergamos. And what that's going to be based upon is that, that church of the, the a great awakening, the great awakening to go and preach the gospel with an with a with a with an evangelistic zeal that had not been seen since the days of Pergamos. So you're going to see, and they're going to have uh, they've not defiled their garments. They should walk with me in white. White always speaks of righteousness. So what's their message going to be? It's going to be the message of righteousness and of holiness. That's where you're going to see a lot of the holiness churches came out of. For they are worthy, worthy based upon what the righteousness of God. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Once again. Now listen to this. Here, here is Jesus addressing that issue of once saved, always saved. That P and Tulip. He said, And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that who does what? He that overcomes. Does it say he that was predestined? He that had no choice? He that was once saved, always saved? No, he that overcomes. How do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. His part and by the word of our testimony or the way we live our lives based upon our adherence to faith in the blood of the Lamb. And he says, I will not blot his name out of the Lamb books of life. Folks, that word blot out literally means to smear or to make illegible. To smear or to make illegible. It's not like taking and, and making something totally removed where it was just invisible. But it means there was something that was once there. Now I'm going to smear it. Now I'm going to rub it. And make it where it can't be uh, uh, read. We looked at the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. Just glanced at it yesterday. Talking about the books are going to be open. And whosoever's name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life is going to be cast in the lake of fire. Now, in order to be in the Lamb's book of life, what did you have to be? You had to have been born again. You had to have been saved to get there to begin with. Now, he's telling them, listen, I'm gonna, I want to... I want to turn you on to this false teaching and tell you, listen, you, there's a wide gate that's telling you that all you got to do is get saved one day and you're okay. But he's saying, I'm telling you, listen, that, that pea and tulip is erroneous. It's contrary to the teaching of me. I will blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So, folks, really, you see the whole encompassing aspect of that Reformation that started out. There was a remnant that genuinely wanted a change and a break, but the, because the roots were 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 were, were in that that that, that church at, at Pergamos. A minute ago, I talked about the, the the revival being like Pergamos, actually it was Smyrna. But you see, they had their roots in that in that thing of let me get to a place of, of power and of prestige and make a name for myself, like the Zwinglies, like the the, the Calvins, like some of those that, that came out of that Reformation movement. And their name became bigger than the name above every other name. And he's saying, listen, you've got to repent. You've got to go back to your first works, back to being watchful and an urgency to preach the gospel. Folks, we're totally, totally out of time today. But we're going to dive in tomorrow to the church at Philadelphia. We only have Philadelphia and Laodicea left. So you can see how contemporary. We'll bring up some people that are, that are really uh, uh, indicative of that Philadelphian church tomorrow as part of the, the Reformation. You see how that, that city and how that, that really the thought just continues right on through as we continue in our study. We'll be back on Monday and Tuesday, uh, next week only. For those that are watching us live, 
not Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday because of the holiday, and not Monday, Tuesday, and next week because I'll be traveling, doing a wedding in another state. So, anyway, folks, we love you guys so much. Pray for you this weekend. Be sure and pray for our outreach as we're doing it in, uh, down towards Miami this, this weekend. We love you so much. You got a bit of a backstory, but get into God's Word. God's Word. Get into you.